Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. It is your friends, Lindsay and Krista. We're really happy you're here. We're so happy you're here. Welcome to Almost 30. Age is not involved. Doesn't exist. Anymore. (laughs) You don't need to be any age to listen. We welcome everyone and anyone. We started this when we were in our 20s, and now we are in our 30s, and we love doing this show. We've been doing it for six and a half years now, and it has grown into a community all over the world, and we are here to support you in your evolution with podcasts on spirituality, wellness, health, personal development, and sometimes entrepreneurship. Mm. Where were you 10 years ago? Chicago. 23. I think I was I was living in Chicago. This was like actually when my real awakening started, I think. I was 20, 23. Yeah, I guess I was in Chicago. I was working at my first job. Probably, I was probably in the cry room at this time. It's yep. around <laughs> 12. We had this office on, we were on the 12th floor. And on the 13th floor, half of the company had half of the floor. And the other half was empty. And we had a room called the cry room. Where you just went to cry and let yeah. it out and then went mm-hmm. back. Literally so bad. I mean, efficient. Very efficient. <laughs> Very, we were just like, are you in the cry room? It was like so dramatic. Isn't that wild that like, that that's going on and no one's like, hey. Yeah. Also, it's like, it's so weird because I felt like such a child. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm like, <laughs> I'm literally going to like, a, you know, just felt like such a child. But yeah, it's probably in the cry room or like but in I, a meeting. I feel like that, you know, you know, we're coming from starting this podcast during the tra- transition from your 20s to your 30s. But like that from college, if you choose to go to college, just that transition from like late teens, early 20s into like real world yes. moment. It's it is, it's like a baby bird being kicked out of the nest and she's yeah. on the ground. She's like, because college doesn't really, for me personally, college didn't really prepare me for much. No, no, no. But you know, I yeah. have it's it's coming from a privileged place to say that, but I didn't really take advantage of my experience in college. And I never felt like I really experienced. I just didn't feel like I used it to my advantage. Same. You know what I mean? But I also, I don't think there's like this real world application happening in college necessarily. So it's very, it's cool because you're going to learn things and have access to resources and people and learnings in college that you wouldn't any other yes. time in your life. You could take a class on X and it's like, what? But then we're talking about like, Taxes, finances, life, uh, you know, daily support for yourself. And it's like, you really have to learn that the hard way. Yes. Yeah, I'll never forget at my job. It was like day two or something. And it was 9.45 a.m. And I was like, I have eight more hours here. I could not (laughs) wrap my fucking head When you put it like that, I would be unwell. And five days of this, I, I I could not. It was like I already had my breakfast. I had sat at my desk. I looked. It was like your second day, so you don't have shit to do. You have. I was like, I looked at my email. I'm, I honestly wanted to fall asleep every day. Yeah. I was. I could, well. Also, I wasn't eating that well. I was eating like Trader Joe's frozen lunches. Totally. I know the salt. My salt game was like beyond. <laughs> and I. I. It was just wild. I was like, but it's interesting when I you know, that quote I talk about how monotony collapses time and novelty mm. unfolds it. It's like, there was so much monotony in my experience that really made time shorten. And I remember at the end, I was like, wow, this day flew. Mm. Time would fly by because I'd essentially be doing the same thing every single day. But yeah, it's it's wild. Where were you? 23, I was in New York. I was working 
Yeah, that time I was working in in the bars. So I was working at like three different bars and um, auditioning during the day or trying to. Not really. It was very half-assed because I was also incredibly tired. I was just like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the motivation. I don't really know which way is up because it was this like, when I say survival mode, it's not like literal survival, but it was like, how do I pay for my rent? How do I, you know, pursue my dreams, but then also like make a living? You know, it was a lot. It was like, it was, it was just chaotic internally. And then I just experienced that externally in ways of just like, you know, getting involved in like weird relationships that really didn't serve me and drinking a lot and going out and just treating my body like shit. And which made my experience just like so uncomfortable. But I think, you know, when I, when I got the opportunity to move to LA a couple, a few years later, like that was, that kind of woke me up out of a a stupor of like, this is my life. I'm a starving artist. Like I just got to get through it. Like there was just like this light where I was like, oh, it could be different. You know? Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. The serving game is crazy. It's like, it's I remember crazy. my last day serving. I was like, fuck everybody. <laughs> I literally was like, bye, bye. <laughs> I was so excited to be done. It's true. I mean, there's, there's so much like, I met some of my best friends yes. in that industry, which is interesting because as hard as it is at times, like you form relationships, connections because you are going through it together. Trauma bonding, baby. Trauma bonding. <laughs> Trauma bonding. Looking out Spanish. for each other, you know, because yes. you got to look out for each other in that yes. industry. And yeah, it was definitely like, wow, we, we went through this together and we've, you know, been friends ever since. And then you just learn a lot about people. You meet mm-hmm. every walk of life in the bar business. Yes. Especially those that are trying to escape their lives. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so I learned to be a really good listener and just like a very good observer of people's yeah. behavior and like what that, you know, believe them when, when they say or do certain things. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a little bit about just before we get into this episode with Karina mm-hmm. Don, something that I had shared on my stories the other day that was resonating with a few of you and you asked for us to expound upon it at during the pod. And that was just basically a, a rant that I kind of went on or just an expression that I had that I don't normally do. Um because I don't normally let everyone into my process of what mm-hmm. I'm what I'm going through. But I was talking about this feeling that I've had lately of when is it my turn? And feeling like I'm putting in all this work, I'm doing all the things. When will it finally be my turn where I feel like everything clicks and everything works and everything flows? And it's frustrating. It's like that feeling of busting your ass all the time and feeling like it's not recognized. And these are all stories I'm telling myself. So, you know, you could perceive them to be true or not. I could perceive them to be true or not. But these are stories I have. When will it be my turn? When will my hard work pay off? When will I be the person that I feel like other people perceive me to be? Where I feel like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm the person people perceive me as. Mm -hmm. Not like I'm a different person, but I don't think I'm as, yeah, even in the good or bad, I don't perceive Mm -hmm. myself to be that way. And it's just like, it's frustrating. You're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for everything to work and flow and work and flow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want more ease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I completely, I I relate. I feel more though, and I don't know why, but I 
feel more in that like surrender mm-hmm. moments, which, you know, isn't better or worse. It's just like... No, surrender is the goal. And I think, but I think with the history that I've had with what I've done as far as like the auditioning and the the artist stuff, it's like, yeah, I, I, I think it comes with the development of patience, which can turn into something that's not so helpful, which is like a complacency or like a, yeah. a lack of drive because you get so frustrated and you're just like, okay, well, there will be the time that it happens, yes. you know? So I think there's a balance. Like I I always am inspired by your fire and determination and, and productivity towards a goal. Um, and I think like there is a moment to surrender and trust that's mm-hmm. like I don't know what that feels like like a full I know I don't need surrender I, I, I full you could say it yeah I 10% I think I 25% surrender but yeah it's, it's that fear yes of surrender where you're like okay but what if I surrender then am I just laying in my bed all day yeah totally. I actually don't know how to exist as a human in surrender <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean I'm like what is sur- I don't understand mm-hmm. I understand conceptually. I don't understand physically. It's almost like, you know, being unattached to the outcome. What, is what, what does that mean? So I think for me, and the time in which we're living in where we create something and we're like, okay, I want to have a, a million dollar launch. Yeah. I want to- I want seven figs. I want to uh, release a song by May and mm-hmm. I want to have 10,000 listens on Spotify. Yeah, yeah that's I wanna, true. You know, it's like having- these expectations and attachments to like how quote successful it's going to be. And I don't think that's wrong, but I think there's a, I don't know if it's spirit being like, so you're missing this thing about what you're creating and the process and like just what it's giving, you know, like it's almost like that where it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like allowing more of the like fruit to come in rather than like focusing on like that. Mm-hmm. One peach in the yes. foreground, in the background. Like I want to get there because I've had beautiful things come in when I've really been manifesting and yes. on that track, and I've had really beautiful things come in when I haven't been. So, and I've I had know. shitty things. You know, both. It's not like it's both been perfect either way. So, I think it's such a balance that I'm sure so many people in our community really work with. Yes, that balance of how much do you push, how much do you work. How much do you do? And then how much do you allow? How much do you surrender? Mm-hmm. And I think I think most of us are on the doing path rather than the surrender path or the allow path because of the world that we're in. And it's just an interesting balance. Yes. And I, I think that's the key. Like it is a balance where I feel like I could, I'm wanting, and I think spring helps with this, but like taking more of that like action, that inspired action where it feels like, yep, okay, do this thing and then learn in that process rather than just like waiting almost. Like knowing that you have what it takes and have everything, but it's like this waiting. But I think for me, my spirit kind of wants to like, okay, let's go. Yes, because it's, you know, there's a, you could be waiting with confidence Mm -hmm. and trust of the universe. You could be waiting because you're actually avoiding Mm -hmm. or you're actually insecure Mm -hmm. and you don't think that you can make it happen. So everything is literally so nuanced and specific to each person and each experience. It's so fascinating. It's fascinating. Because you're like, am I pushing and doing because I'm confident and because Mm -hmm. I want this to happen? 
or because I am scared that it won't. Yes. Like it's so in the moment. It's so energetic. It's so specific. But I think another layer, just last thing on that is like, there is, I think it's like owning that part of us that really wants to be seen and and the work to be like consumed, seen for what you know it is. Yeah. You know, and like, there's a part of me that has that like, not shame, but just a, a something about it. Like yeah, where I, it, I, I can't- I'm just, sure a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Where you're like- you I want to shine. It, it, I want to yes. be- But it's, well, it's interesting because even with coaching people, you know, you ask them, you're like, what do you want? They're like, I want to empower people or I want to help. They say the help thing. Yeah, the serving part. The serving, which is truth. But I've never had anyone be like, I want to shine. Mm-hmm. Or I want to yeah. be seen. You know, it's cu- kind of shameful to say that. Yes. And to say, I want to shine. I want to be seen. I want to be a bright light. I want to be, you know, no one really feels comfortable and confident saying those truths too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which could be preventing people from being in that space. Yes. You know? Yes, completely. So fascinating. Well, we're right there with you guys. We're yeah, right truly. there with you on this journey and just like to connect with you before we start episodes sometimes. And this one was with me and Karina. So Karina was in person in Los Angeles and I got to sit down with her, which was so beautiful. I spent a good amount of time with Karina at her homes in Austin, here in California, and her and Katrina of Tone It Up have been such dears to mm-hmm. Lindsay and I throughout our journey. We have a podcast interview with Katrina. We have a podcast interview with both of the girls, Karina and Katrina. Their very first podcast interview yes, they've ever baby. done. So you can check out that content <laughs> that we have together. And in this conversation with Karina, we talked about her book, her memoir of mental illness and healing, her journey with a mother that had schizophrenia, that had mental illness and its impact on her life. And this is a memoir of her life as well. So she talks about these various experiences that are super deep, super profound, and she really went there Mm -hmm. in this book. Yeah. Yeah. The book is called The Big Silence. Um, And if you're from the Tone It Up community or Karina's community, welcome. Welcome, welcome. We're so happy to have you. I feel like, you know, we've overlapped over the years and it's just always been so beautiful to meet you all. So thank you for being here. And um, I'm excited for this episode. I feel like these very real deep conversations about things that are taboo, uh, that might hold a lot of shame for people out there, um, could be very healing. Yes. And talk about sharing your truth. I mean, there are parts of this book that I'm like, whoa, she really went there you know, talking about drugs, being arrested, mm-hmm. talking about the intimacies of growing up with a mother that has schizophrenia and sort of her episodes that she would have. And her mother actually passed recently. And so that was such an interesting, you know, and mm-hmm. heartbreaking journey mm-hmm. for her. And in this conversation, we talked really about her story. And then we talked about how to support someone with mental health, how she supports herself with mental health now, um, her experience and journey with her husband through it all and shared some really beautiful, inspiring stories. So this is such a good one. If you know anyone that struggles with their mental health, I think this is a good conversation to send to them, to open up conversation together about this topic, to have more compassion and empathy. We have other episodes on mental health with Almost 30 that you can dig into um, by searching Mental Health Almost 30 or checking out our website, almost30.com, and searching mental health. We have a bunch of beautiful episodes and blog posts 
to support you. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about Almost 30 and what we do here, our courses and programs, our membership, um, and learn more about Krista and I, you can go to almost30.com. Uh, and you can also find our discounts and special partner codes so y'all can just support yourselves in all the ways. But thank you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Um, that's really, really supportive of the show so we can just bring on guests like Karina and more. And we have episodes every single week. Mm-hmm. We love you guys. Thank you for being a part of our lives and community. Thank you for joining us on Almost 30. Thank you for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. We will see you on the other side. Bye. The other day I was listening to Dr. Mark Hyman on a podcast and he was talking about Tom Brady and how Tom Brady doesn't drink water without electrolytes in it. And I thought that was so simple, but so profound. I am such a fan of just upgrading my water, making sure the water is working for me rather than depleting me. Our water is stripped of the minerals that we need. And so I am all about putting electrolytes in my water, but without the sugar. No, none of that sugary electrolyte mixes or liquids. So I drink element, element I put into my water every single day. I love the raspberry, the watermelon, and the citrus. Those are my top three. Uh, But if you are feeling dehydrated, if you are feeling very low energy, if you get headaches, you could be dehydrated. There's many causes of these things, but dehydration is so, so common. If you go to drinklmnt.com and click on the science, y'all, you are going to be fascinated. For example, there was a 2011 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association looking at sodium intake and cardiovascular events such as stroke and heart attack. It really painted a very interesting picture. The likelihood of health problems was quite high in individuals consuming less than two grams of sodium per day. The lowest rate of events was at about five grams per day of sodium intake. This is more than double what is recommended by the AHA, FDA, and CDC. What is particularly interesting in the study's author's uh, notes is that one must get as high as eight grams of sodium per day to see the same degree of problems as below two grams per day of intake. Fascinating. So there is that sweet spot. There's more science on the website. I love Element. Our friend Kelly Levesque, famed uh, holistic nutritionist to the stars, Uh, is a huge Element fan and turned us on to this brand. So if you want to try Element for free, you can get a free sample pack when you go to drinklmnt.com slash almost 30. You're going to get a free sample pack of all of their best flavors. Again, my favorites are the raspberry, watermelon, and citrus. I put one packet into about 24 ounces of water. It is delicious. I am hydrated. I'm feeling really good, clear, energized. Um, I'm able to work out really well. I love the difference that it's made. Drinklmnt.com slash almost 30 for a free sample pack. You'll just have to pay a few bucks for shipping. That's drinklmnt.com slash almost 30. Okay, let's do a quick prayer. Thank you, God, for (sighs) clearing the space of any anxiety, stress, emotion. Thank you for allowing our truth to be heard. Thank you for grounding us into Mother Earth. 
Thank you for allowing us to speak from a place of love, from a place of peace. Thank you for allowing the highest vibrational story and message to come through from myself and from Karina. Thank you for allowing this conversation to reach all of those it's supposed to reach. We are so grateful you brought us together today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Hello, babe. Hello. Oh my gosh. So I was, I started my day listening to the podcast with you and Bobby mm-hmm. in tears. Mm-hmm. And hearing, oh my, I'm like going to cry thinking about it. Your story has been so profound and I've known you over the years, but I know that so much has changed for you and your mission has gotten so much clearer with the passing of your mother. And I was so grateful also to have your book to dig into a little bit because I knew about your story, but I did not know about your story. Like it was one of those things like, you know, surface level I understood, but the detail in here was like so powerful. And I'm so excited for this book to come out, for people to, you know, just really be able to feel less alone in their journey. And I know that's a lot of the experience of the big silence. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about and like go back a bit so people can catch up with your story because they might know, you know, you are someone that is a passionate advocate for mental health, but I don't think they really understand all that you went through from the beginning. So as much as you want to start with from the beginning, I would love to go there. Yeah. um, I have been an advocate of mental health for many, many years. I would say I was too afraid to talk about it too. Even in the beginning of Tone It Up, it was like, oh, she can't have that past. Oh, she did drugs. She went through depression. No, she is a fitness superstar. She is the cheerleader for all women. She is perfect. But, you know, society has changed, which, and opened up that door to actually um, break the silence. And yeah, so I am from Indiana and I come from a family that has a history of mental health disease. Uh, my mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, depression when I was about 12 years old. But years leading up to that, uh, you know, we didn't know what was going on in our household. There was stuff going on where um, I can go into detail or not, but it was, and she would be missing from our house for days or weeks or months at a time or end up in a hospital as a Jane Doe. And as a little girl growing up, you know, um, I didn't know what was happening and nobody was talking about mental illness yeah, at all. So it was very confusing. And finally, after um, quite some time when she was a missing persons and we got the call that she was in a mental institution and I went to the hospital to see her and that's when she was, you know, hooked up to Haldol and some other medications. To like subdue her? Yeah. And she didn't, when they first found her, they found her in a, a ditch on the side of a road because she had been walking for days and days and hadn't eaten. It was cold in Indiana. I think it was wintertime. And, you know, she didn't, she would never say her name. And she didn't say she had a family until they started giving her anti-psychosis drugs. And then the doctor was like, okay, we're dealing with a mental health condition here. And then once she got on those drugs, then she said, oh, I have a husband, I have a family. And they reached out to us. So that's when, um, like, you know, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there, I learned that. And I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, no one was teaching us that. So I, as a little girl, went to the library and picked up a book on what is schizophrenia? Wow. Did you feel like it all made sense or 
what was the experience of seeing that there was a diagnosis that you could sort of understand through that book? I didn't understand anything. Yeah. I didn't understand anything, so I went to uh, numbing at a very young age because it was very confusing. It was, yeah, you just, you start, that was the beginning of my disappearing, of my own self, of not understanding what's going on, a mom that's never home, a dad that's struggling as well and trying to understand what his wife of many years is going through. And I just started disappearing. Mm. Did he, like, your experience with your father and your mother, did he, was she, like, how did he experience that? If he's married to her for a long time, like, what was his experience with everything? Did he think it was normal? Did he numb out? Did he check out? Like, what was, what, how did you view that? I would say he, he stood by her through all the times of in and out of the home. Uh, You know, there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of, you know, the delusions that my mother had when she was in the home. It was very complicated. It was a chaotic household. Like, we weren't allowed to watch TV. We weren't allowed to wear images on our clothes. We weren't, she she was an artist. She destroyed all of her art because that was uh, against her religion. Uh, so, you know, he, he went through his own pain. And so even in my book, like that's my story and my yeah. experience. But if you ask my sister or my dad, yes. they had their own experience. And we all went through some deep, dark periods where I would honestly say, like, we didn't really communicate that Mm -hmm. much about it. We kind of ignored it. We're like, everything's fine here. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all good. Yeah, with (laughs) because I was interested in that too. So in the prologue, you talk a little bit about when she was homeless and, you know, she thought you were corrupted by Satan. And then you mentioned the religion thing. What was the correlation there between like the religion? Like how did religion kind of play into everything? You know, schizophrenia, there's a lot of religious tendencies. Um, really? As, as a paranoid schizophrenic. And yeah, she thought my dad was part of a satanic cult. And so I was, so my relationship with my mom was very tight from a little girl. Like she always came to me to tell me her delusions or her beliefs. And so she had turned me against my father because I thought he was part of a satanic cult. And, uh, you know, she she would pick me up from school as a little girl and take me to go get an apple fritter at my favorite bakery and bring out the Bible and like tell me all of the things that my dad is doing and that my friend's parents are part of the cult and the new world order and they were going to take over the world. And I'm that's where I was just like, I was so confused. I was like, okay, I can't, I cannot trust anybody. Yes. Because you, as a little girl, you trust what your mother tells you, right? Yes. I'm like, okay, my mom is this. So I become very inward. Yes. And uh, if I ever brought things up to my friends back then, they would be like, you're crazy. Wow. And so I did lose a lot of friends back then. They're like, that Karina girl, she's she's cuckoo. A hundred percent. You're like, so the New World Order is, <laughs> wow, that's like early. So in 2020, when sort of that, this is kind of a tangent, that conversation about like, you know, like the elites being a satanic cult and the New World Order came up, were you like, huh? Mm-hmm. Did, that, did you ever think anything about that? How your mom was sort of talking about that when you were very little? Yeah. 
it, it always brings up, I'm always like, what was real? What is yes. not? Like even to this day, I'm like, maybe she was right. Yes. Maybe she's yes. <laughs> like, maybe she's not crazy. No, but yes. it's like your little girl being like, you know what? She was still right. <laughs> you know, yes. What do I believe? My yes. sister and I always have those conversations still. Yes. We'll be like, to, trying to decipher what is real, what was right. Was she yes. was she mentally ill or were there certain points that she made that were correct or what, you know, just trying to pick it apart. But I think we get to this point where we're like, you know what, just release it and, and heal and move on and have our own beliefs. And, you know, and I, I know a lot that was going on in my mother's head because since she passed and I was her caretaker, um, and I am actually going to Palm Springs tomorrow to clean out her cabin, but I have all of her old journals so I can see the suffering that she went through and the heavy depression. And I've read her journals. It's heavy. Wow. Yeah. What was some of the stuff in it? Um, She wanted to die. Wow. She was, um, because, but she was religious and... Um, Catholic or... I can't keep track. It okay. was always changing. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But she was very depressed. She was like, if I drink enough of this vodka, can it kill me? Uh, it's against my religion to commit suicide. Uh, can I die of a lonely heart? Wow. Wow. That's a lot. I know it's so weird to think about people in that situation, it's like, you know, we kind of go about our day and we're like walking around the street, we're doing our thing. And then you just, sometimes you can forget about in your mind, like the pain that someone's going through on an every second basis. Yeah. And I think with, you know, the current situation over the last two years, the loneliness was heightened. And, and it, as with many people, the depression gets deeper and harder. And um, I do believe that the past two years really took a toll on her health because, um, you know, five years ago when I became her caretaker and found her in a hospital in Seattle and then moved her to uh, California, you know, they told me to put her on hospice because her health was so bad. And um, I brought, brought her back to California, got her up and running and got her the best doctors and she was thriving and she was living on her own again after two years. And then with everything, she just stopped taking care of herself. She got isolated and lonely and her health conditions came back. And then it just deteriorated from there. Uh, yeah, I was I was in Florida. My dad's been sick and I was in Florida with my grandpa. My grandpa's a lot older. He's like 93. And he was having dinner with us. And then all of a sudden, he's just like, I'm so depressed. And it was so interesting to me because I'm like, for some reason, it's like elderly people. I think sometimes we don't necessarily understand the complexity of their experience. I think the same with children. We don't understand. Maybe it's like we don't understand the complexity of someone else's experience. But I was like, oh, of course. You're not seeing people all day. They were in their rooms, you know, at the nursing home and all this stuff. And it was just so, so eye-opening for me because I'm like, wow, that I forget. It's just the reminder of the complexity of everyone's experience. But during her journey, you know, it sounds like she moved around quite a bit. You know, she was leaving home. She was in Seattle, you said at one point. She was homeless. She was in a ditch. What was like her journey? Does she spend a lot of time at home when you're younger? And then was there a point where it just became she was on the on the run? Or what was like that path? When I was younger, she was home 
and spent time with my sister and I. And, you know, I've gone through a lot of therapy and EMDR and all that stuff. But I don't have, even in EMDR, which I know you've talked about on your podcast before, um, I can't remember any of the memories with her. And I can dig deep, but they're just like gone. Uh, And so all I can remember is the traumatic experiences and me being alone and everything. But I know she was at home and she was very artistic. She was an artist. She was a social worker. Uh, But then it just, it shifted. And I don't know at what point she started just, there was screaming and arguing and uh, being really mean to my sister and I and my dad and um, saying, I wish you were never born. Just like, yeah. ang- you know, yes. angry. So that's that's what I remember when I'm in therapy. They're like, what is the memory of your mom? Like her telling me I wish she wishes I was never born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Had to work through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but some, I used, I didn't realize like, I've you know, some dark, you know, my mom has struggled with with mental illness as well. And I didn't realize that it was not normal. Yeah. <laughs> like right? I would say stuff that she would say and people would be like, that's horrifying. I know. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm like, like oh, it is? Your mom doesn't normally tell you that? <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. Like your mom doesn't say that, you know, the worst thing you could be would be fat as a kid. Like, you know what I mean? Just stuff. And I'd be like, ha And they're like, that's literally horrifying. How are you laughing? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, my. well, yeah. My mom, to my, my sister was getting ready to go to prom. Oh, and God. And was like, she had her hair up in a bun. My mom hates short hair or if you pull it up. I, <laughs> and she was like, ripped it out. She's like, you look ugly. You can't do that. And like made my sister cry when she was about to go to prom. Of course. It's an interesting thing. It's like energetic sometimes where sometimes when the heightened moments of like birthdays or holidays or prom, it's like that heightened energy creates a situation where there's, that happens. Yeah. It's almost like it sets it up for something chaotic to happen. Yeah. I I didn't go to prom because my mom grounded me the day of prom. But then I'm like, well, maybe she didn't go to prom because her dad was schizophrenic and committed suicide when she was 18. And so maybe there was like some relation where she wanted to ruin my prom and my sister's prom. Yes. But I have a happy story to the prom. Tell me. Okay. So I started dating Bobby and he knew I never went to prom. So our first Valentine's Day, we were about five months, no, four months into dating. He um, told me he was going to take me somewhere special. And this is when he actually lived in an apartment below me and I lived above. You know this story. And... um. He said, okay, come downstairs. And I got all dressed up in this red dress. He's like, we're going somewhere fancy. And I walk in and he had cleared the furniture in his um, living room. He put like one of those balls that, what are the disco balls lights. He had a table with white, white tablecloths and everything. And he had, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm like literally going to cry. Any story with Bobby, I'm like in tears. <laughs> and he wrote prom and he um, put a little flower on my chest like it was my prom night. Cannot. <laughs> We're just gonna cry. This We're just gonna, I was like, well, I knew when we started at the beginning when I was listening to you and Bobby. Yeah. Just like his journey was supporting you. Yeah. And your mom. Yeah. And that that was we were a few months in, and I literally fell to my knees at his front door. I was like, what is this? And we took prom photos. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna marry this guy. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. say no more. And with your, I mean. So with schizophrenia and her dad passing, like, what was that? Did she have a conversation with you about it? Like, how did she you find out? She never talked about it. Wow. We knew about it, I think, mostly from my grandmother. Yeah. 
But my mom never talked about her family and her history and the trauma that they went through. And she also never went to therapy. Yeah. Yeah. She never worked through it. She never wanted to admit her um, her mental state, her depression, what her suffering was. And, you know, the last five years of her life, I was spending so much time with her. I just wanted to like learn more about her and have her share her stories and hear about all of these, you know, I want to say adventures, but not necessarily good. But she just, she really was closed up. And then the last three days of her life when she was on hospice, I was with her at her bedside and she was at a hospital in San Diego. And, you know, she never, she got mad at me for being a mental health advocate. She's like, people are going to think I'm crazy if you talk about this and have my work with NAMI. And then day two, I say, I always say there's like the three days, day three, day two, which was the day before she died. She was, she could barely speak. And she goes, it's not just the physical health. It's the mental health. I was like, finally. <laughs> and so I told her uh, and she was still able to understand. I said, well, my sister and I are going to change that. So, and I told her that I had started a nonprofit in her honor so that no one has to suffer like her anymore. No one has to suffer in silence. And I told her about the book. I told her everything. And she just looked at me and she smiled. That end of life clarity, (laughs) you know, where everyone's like, I should have spent more time with family. Yeah. It is mental health. It's, it's wild. I should have been more open. I should yes. have been more honest. I should have. Yes. You know, she. And we she, all know these things before we die too. Yeah. You know, it's like, but we just are kind of like, oh, maybe. Yeah. And that was the thing now that we're speaking about death. Is yeah. She's like, those last two days when she was still coherent, she's like, I regret, I regret. Wow. And I was like, mom, it's okay. Don't regret anything. I was like, you made a very strong daughter. And you should be proud of that. But, yeah, you know, she she struggled and no one deserves that. Yeah. And, you know, we've been, my sister Rachel is our executive director for The Big Silence. And we have already made such an impact and, you know, saved so many lives. And opening up the stories that come in and the resources that we have um, my mom would be proud. She's definitely with you for sure. Oh, yeah. You know, she's shown up in my dreams. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> the death and dying process, you know, you were a caretaker, but you were also a victim in a way, you know, as the inner child. And then So what was like, how did you work yourself through all the emotions and feelings where you're frustrated, you're sad, you're confused, you're grieving? Like, what was that process? Um, After she passed? Even during the process of the three days before? Um, The three days. You were probably caretaker mode. I was caretaker. Mm -hmm. I was at her bedside reading Psalm 23. Wow. Hold you know, combing her hair, um, holding her hand making sure she was warm as she began to get cold. Um, 
telling her I love her. Making sure the nurses, you know, made her comfortable, get her some lip gloss or, you know, yeah. it's like her lips are chapped. Can we get some lip balm on here? <laughs> um, you know, and then I didn't cry in front of her. I, I would leave, you know, I mean, I'm sure I was, when she was asleep, I would, I would cry. Um, but I just was caretaker. That's all I knew. That's what I had been all of my life. And so the shift, because um, I had left the hospital um, on day three, and then I got the call at 1230 in the morning from the doctor. Um, and of course, Bobby, I had flown out there by myself and, and Bobby's like, do you want me to come? I was like, no, I got this. I got this. You know, it's hilarious. Of course, he throws the five Pomeranians in the RV yes. and drives from Texas to <laughs> San yes. Diego and arrives um, in time to be there with me. And I just, you know, but then I, I, I was, I was lost a bit because she was consuming yeah. my brain for 30 years. I'm yes. 40 now, turning 41. <laughs> soon, but um, 30 years of my life had been this experience with having her and the trauma and it was on my body. And I was like, what do I do with this now? And so then, you know, um, the night that I got the call, which my mom, pure Linda Joy Tompkins style, because her mother passed away on September 14th. And I thought she was going to pass away on the 14th. But my mom was like, I want my own day. She waited till the 15th. <laughs> That was totally my mom. Um, but uh, afterwards, I just, I didn't think I was numb. I didn't sleep. And I think that's totally fine. I have a lot of people feel guilty and grief. And they're like, well, I have to move on. Why am I feeling this? And I would say, and Bobby, we love Bobby, but he was like, when are you going to get over this? I'm like, whenever I'm ready. And I think it's important for those others to know like however the grief process is for you give yourself that time and some days are good some days are bad if you don't want to do anything if you don't want to get out of bed it's okay but it changes and so for me after she passed because I was with her and saw her you know I didn't sleep for at least two months because I would have these visions of her um, and if you've been by someone on their last days you know what I'm talking about um, it's pretty traumatic but once we were ready, the healing begins. And I'm almost at my six-month anniversary of mom passing. And um, it's the change is here. Mm -hmm. And I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're allowed to... It's like you're able to feel better when you give yourself the space to grieve. You know, I think when people don't, it's like it just builds underneath the surface. And then it never fully fully heals. And I think they say an emotion takes like nine seconds to be felt. And oftentimes we don't even give ourselves like the nine seconds. We're looking at our phone, we're doing all these things. And when we really allow ourselves to feel, we're able to heal so much faster. You know, with, and I relate to you on this, like with mental health growing up with, especially with a mother with mental health, you know, there's so much like codependency and, you know, there's so much of that unsuredness in your nervous system because you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what to expect. So how have you healed and how have you been able to, you know, remother yourself through it all? Because 
that can really be, that's, it's in, it's ingrained in you. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of reparentification work in the past. So I'm writing letters to my little girl or just loving her, treating myself like I'm my five-year-old Karina, like love, like how would you treat this little girl? And so I've done a lot of that work. And then afterwards it was, um, I don't know. I, I didn't, I haven't gone back to therapy since she passed because I feel like I have all those tools from many years. Um, but I talk about it a lot when I needed to talk about it to my husband, my friends, um, meditation. I do the cold plunge. Do you cold plunge? I will at your house. Yeah. It's like, it's good. Oh my God. I literally, like, I would, before my mom passed and after, I'm like, Bobby, it would be nighttime. And I'm like, I'm having anxiety. I'm stressed out. Can we just go get in the cold plunge? And then it just like all melts away. But uh, the work, I, you know, and because I'm a caregiver, I think I put a lot of that into the nonprofit to help others because now I have that capacity and I know the pain that others are going through and how they don't need to. And just being a resource for others to not you know, have to suffer like that. I, I even got a DM today. And, you know, when I was 13, I had a suicide, I'm a suicide survivor. And I had someone DM me saying that their daughter's 14 and they found out that um, they're, they went on her computer and she's Googling, how many pills does it take to commit suicide? And she won't go to therapy. She won't, you know, anything and obviously I connect with that because I my suicide was alcohol and pills and um or my suicide attempt and so I'm like oh well we were immediately finding resources for her for not only that she's like well how do I help my daughter I'm like well you also need to help yourself so we're not experts we're not medical experts um but we have all the resources because if you're Everyone puts all the focus on the one who ha is having the mental health challenge, but the family members are having it too because it affects you so much. So, you know, I would say I'm mentally healthy, but situational depression or anxiety is a thing. And the family members have so much stress and they put so much on the family member with the condition, they don't take care of themselves, mm -hmm. which... Yeah, yeah okay. very much like the codependency where you're like, I'm not okay if you're okay. And so in your situation with the suicide attempt, what was like, did someone find you? What happened there? And what was the reaction of your family? Because it's almost like the attention maybe shifted to you in a moment from your mom. Yeah, it's all, the full story is in the book, but the short story is um, I was at a friend's house and my parents had been fighting a lot. My mom, she was not diagnosed yet, but they were fighting and she had been out of the house and in the house and missing. And um, I was at a friend's house over the weekend and I was really depressed and uh, we were with friends partying and we were smoking and drinking and doing all the things at that age, 12. All you got to do in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I knew I had been journaling about suicide I had all of these ideas and that night I went up her mom, my friend's house um, that I was at, her mom is a nurse. So I went up to her mom's medicine cabinet there are no parents home and I took all the prescription pills and downed it with some, some rum and then went and just sat in a room. And then my friends found me 
And I, it's weird that I can even remember this. I have a really good memory, which is weird. But I remember they put me in a cold shower. And then um, I was choking on my own vomit. And they ended up calling my parents. And my mom was home at the time. They came over. And um, yeah, and they were hold- my parents were holding me. And I said, no, I just want to go to Jesus. I just want to go to Jesus. And they ended up um, calling 911 and an ambulance coming, pumping my stomach. I ended up in the hospital. And the doctor, once I came to it, I think it was the next day, uh, the doctor was like asking my parents, do you want us to check her in to a you know, psychiatric ward? But of course, back then, they're like, oh, no, no, she's fine. Yeah. She's fine. And just one night. Yeah. Yeah. Just, she didn't mean that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> She's being a, a rebel. Yeah. It's a rebel She's face. A defiant girl. Yeah, yes. She just got drunk with her friends. <laughs> yes, yes. And I said, then the doctor's like, are you okay with that? I said, okay, I'll go home as long as my parents don't fight anymore. And that lasted a day. <laughs> so. But I am grateful I'm here. So anybody with um, thoughts of suicide that are listening you can overcome and it's not worth it. It's not worth it for yourself, your family members, your loved ones to seek help. It's nothing to be ashamed of and it's nothing to feel embarrassed of. It's okay if you don't feel right, if you're having these thoughts and there's so many resources out there and they're free. They're uh, no one, it can be confidential. Like even with the big silence, you can text hero to 741741 and immediately have confidential um, counseling. Oh, great. Yeah. So that's hero? Yeah. H-E-R-O? Okay. And Bobby made up, he created, I was like, what, a, what is our text word? He's like, hero. Because if you save yourself, you're your own hero. And if you give that text line to a friend, oh my God. then you're the hero. Bobby. Bobby. No one's better. (laughs) So when you were at your mother's bedside when she was in hospice, when she was passing, where were your sister and your father? Like, because I guess what I want to highlight is the different experiences that people have in response to mental health. Well, my dad has not seen my mother since she left when I was 18. So she was back in the home and I kissed him goodbye for work one morning and said, what do you want for dinner? And then he never saw her again. She, I got home from school that day, from high school. And she said, I'm packing up and I'm leaving. Will you come with me? Because Jesus wants to send me on a journey. And I said, no, I'm not leaving home. I have, I have school, I have this. And she packed up, took all the money out of the bank account, took the car and disappeared. Uh, and so then... Took all your family's money out? Yeah, out of the bank account. Yeah. Um. And she was gone for a few months and my dad had to hire a private investigator and found her eventually, found her in California, in LA. That is how I ended up in LA. No, you came to came after her. <laughs> yeah, I came after her. I thought I would bring her home and then I fell in love with California and I moved here. But she would never talk to my dad again. So that was the, they were married for 25 years and then she was gone one day and that was the last time my dad saw her. So how's he doing? He went through his own depression. Yes. Um, but he is remarried to a wonderful woman. Really? Now, Beth. She's one of my best friends. Yeah. Oh, bless. Yeah. I'm so grateful. I, I forget how many. I think they're almost remarried. 
18 years, oh, 20 years, something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my sister was not at the bedside with my mom. She did come to San Diego because my mom was in and out of the hospital the past few months of her life. My sister did meet me there and kind of said goodbye to my mom. She knew it was coming. But my sister's wounds are much deeper and different. She older, younger? Two years older than me. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's a different experience. And me being the caregiver and the yes, got to take care of everything, I was there, you know, quickly. Yeah. But my sister was like, I, I can't do it which I respect that. Everybody has their boundaries. Uh, but my mom's, the one person who was there with me was um, my mom's sister, Carol. She flew out from Florida and uh, was with me for two, day one and day two. And then Bobby was there with me for day three. And how have you supported you and your sister, each other through the grieving process? If you had different experiences, like did it ever put a strain on your relationship? Um, I don't know. You know what? My mother's passing and us now working together on the nonprofit has brought us really closer and checking in on each other and supporting one another. And I think it's really been healing for my sister as well. So I'm very grateful for that. And I know my dad, it's been healing too, that to see his two daughters working together and becoming stronger and, you know, trying to make a difference from all the chaos versus just spiraling. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned boundaries too, and boundaries is huge. And I know even in the book, I was reading a little bit about it, like, you know, your process with boundaries, but you don't really know or understand that you can set them usually until you get older. So what has been your like journey with boundaries? Hmm. I just... Yeah, it's taken me a, a long time to figure out boundaries. But now I am just, I have, as I get older, more confidence. I know how to say no. I know how to say, I don't feel like that today. And that's okay. I don't have to be a people pleaser. Uh, as long as I'm being a good fucking person and a good friend, I, I'm allowed to have these boundaries. And then everyone around you starts to respect you for that for just standing up for yourself. Again, as long as you're a good person. And um, I used to have so much guilt for like saying no to things. And now I'm like, no. But now everybody, then once you start setting boundaries, people are like, I understand you. Yes, I get you. You're yes. taking care of your own mental space. And you just say that. And then eventually it becomes easy. There's no more guilt of saying no. Yeah, it's like I get liberated when people have boundaries. Yeah. I'm like, yes, bitch. I know. Yes. If they're like your friend. They say like, no to me. I'm like, yes. Perfect. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you don't feel like it? Oh my God. I know. Well, that's the thing. It used to be such a bad thing if you said. Oh my gosh. You're invited to an event or a party. Yes. And you can't say no. But now everyone I think is getting used to, this is what's right for me. Yes. I support you. But in my space, my mental space and my capacity right now, I, I can't say yes. Yes. Mine, I have to like, mine's my initial inclination with anything is to say yes to people. So if they're like, you want to do this? You want to do that? I'm, I'm like always, yes, yes, yes. And so now I'm trying to like take a second and just kind of give myself a moment to process it. Like, do you actually want to do this? Because when I'm sharing energy with people, I'm like, oh, I... I'm a little codependent in that way. I'm like, I want them to be happy, whatever. 
And so I've had to really give myself space. And even on text, if someone texts me to do something, I'm like, I'm not answering that for like four hours. Yeah. So then I can think about it. Do I want to drive here? Do I want to do this? Like, And I can kind of even psychically get in the space of being like, does this feel good for me? Yeah. And I know too, something that I'll say is like, you know, I want to think about that. You know, I need to check. I'll just be like, I need to check. I'll, sometimes you say Justin. I'm like, I need to check with Justin. And that like will always <laughs> So like, I know when you text me and you say, I want to check with yeah, Justin. I actually here. Would <laughs> never, never with you. But I'll be like, I just want to, I would but see if it's a text, I have time to think about it myself. But yeah. in person, I'll be like, because I've seen other people do that. We're like, I want to check with my husband. I'm like, what? <laughs> You're like, I know that trick. <laughs> yeah, literally, like, you bitch. <laughs> but yeah, but it is like so liberating, especially as a business owner too. It's interesting too, like, you know, when I think about you being the founder that you are and you starting the big silence, like how your struggles, you've really turned into something beautiful. You know, being someone that was the caretaker, it was almost like you're a caretaker in the community, you know, for Tone It Up. Like you were kind of felt responsible for everyone and you just wanted them to grow. You wanted them to thrive. And then with big silence, it's like you also turned the energy of wanting to support people with something that was really, really hard for you in a positive way. So I'd love to just kind of explore that a little bit because I think a lot of times people see their mental illness as something that's wrong with them or they see some of their childhood wounds or childhood, you know, struggles as things that are bad, but you can really make them beautiful. Yeah, and with Tone It Up, you know, I love that we are bringing more mental health into Tone It Up too. Uh, And for the entire month of May, when my book comes out, um, Tone It Up is donating towards the big silence for all of our programs for 2022, a a percentage of sales. Um, But it's really important for Tone It Up because it is, it's physical, but it's also mental. And those same women that are in our Tone It Up community, millions of women are now feeling less alone. And again, I go back to my messages and my DMs of, wow, thank you for talking about this because I struggle I have struggled silently for so long. And now I realize when you speak and other women are speaking up now that they have suffered and they have, you know, episodes of depression or anxiety and like knowing that it's normal. And that's the most important thing for me right now is just normalizing that conversation. Be like, I don't feel good today. And, you know, it can start in small doses. It started with me telling Bobby, I'm having a day, you know, and now I'm very open. I'm like, I'm having a day mm-hmm. to anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just give me my space. Yes. I was talking to my Uber that the other day in the car. He's like, how are you? I was like, to be honest, <laughs> I don't know what the point is sometimes. <laughs> the days like, of saying, fine, yes, I'm fine, yes, are over. Yes, it's okay. Yes. Because you have your good days and you have your bad days and everyone does and it's normal. Mm-hmm. And some days you just like saying, I'm not so good today. Mm-hmm. I'm not well. It just, that is only, that, those words can be healing in itself yes. instead of like keeping it inside. Yes. Be like, I'm great. Yes. You know? And then some days you are great. Did you know that the drugs we take to manage period cramps were invented in the 1950s and exclusively tested on men? <laughs> what? It's literally outrageous that there hasn't been more innovation when it comes to periods. Daloon is changing that with dietitian formulated solutions that relieve our symptoms while actually supporting cycle health. Because our cycles affect every aspect of our wellness, period pain, mood, sleep, skin, metabolism, energy, and more. I, I don't know about you, but you know, some some months I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything has to stop, but it really can't because I'm experiencing you know, really bad cramps or headaches, fatigue, 
you bloating, you name it. I've really tried a lot of things. And while I think I've gotten most of my symptoms under control, it doesn't mean they still don't happen and kind of disrupt my flow. So I was really excited to find Daloon and recommend it to a lot of my friends and they have been absolutely loving it. I was talking to a friend the other day that experienced like really, really bad periods, cramps and just all these symptoms. And she was so happy uh, to try Daloon. She's noticed that her symptoms have subsided. They don't last as long. They're not as intense and she can really just be in her life, which is really nice. So Deloon Nutritional Solutions are dietitian formulated to work with your cycle health, not against it. It'll help you all month long while also relieving your cramps and PMS during your period. Deloon creates effective drug-free supplements for period cramps, PMS, and optimal cycle health. So you can get the relief you need naturally, which I'm all about, and start feeling like your best self. So if you want high potency, fast acting supplements for your period cramps, PMS, and really getting your cycle health in its prime top condition, like 92% of their customers report that relief, try Deloon. Leave bad periods behind and start the new year off with 23% off. Go to cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If Deloon isn't the right match for you, your money back is guaranteed. That's cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. Ah, my favorite app on my phone. I'm so excited to share it with you. Truebill. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. Uh, I know Krista shared about this with her Life Edit crew because it's such a good hack. I mean, unsubscribing from subscriptions, say no more, just clears and creates space and puts money back into your pocket. On average, people save up to $720 per year with Truebill. I've already saved $300. I was shocked. I was paying for things I didn't even know I was still subscribed to. Companies make subscriptions hard to cancel. It's just, that's the reality. And Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. It's easy, easy, easy. I This is the number one app I recommend. I'm so freaking excited for you guys. It has over 2 million users and helped them save over $100 million. That's right. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling them today at truebill.com slash almost 30. That's truebill, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L.com slash almost 30. Go right now, truebill.com slash almost 30. It could save you hundreds a year truebill.com slash almost 30. And so being honest with Bobby and people around you and, you know, being in relationship, like what was that journey of how he supported you? You know, did you have to have any conversations about this is my experience? You know, this is what I went through or what's that been like being in relationship? So Bobby has never been surrounded by anyone uh, with a mental health condition or knowingly or a close family member. So I know you listened to that podcast with him where he starts crying too. <laughs> and he was so supportive, but we had to really work together because we got married 
And then we got home from our honeymoon. And then my mom is in the hospital. She hadn't been talking to me for six months. Um, and I, I got a call that she was had had a stroke. And this was five years ago. Was uh, she working at all? Like, where was she getting money? She, before the, <laughs> interesting. She was working when she had a stroke. Um, pr- but it took her a long time to get a job because she was living in her car. And I was sending her money and trying to, she was moving, she was moving around the country. That's what my mom did in her car, sleeping with her dog. Um, I would try to get her a hotel room for, you know, two weeks at a time. But then I would, one time I got her a Motel 6 and she was not happy with that. So she said, I'd rather sleep in my car. Okay. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) We have standards. You know. I hear it. And so, um, then, yeah, so she finally got a job in Aberdeen, uh-huh. Washington, as a social worker doing intake for those who are mentally ill. Wow. She worked in that field. But did, didn't see herself. No. Wow. Yeah. So she was working. Uh, and, that's like, I think that's the most fascinating thing I've ever heard. Yeah. She helped others who had wow. mental health conditions. But couldn't see. She knew. Wow, okay, okay. She she knew, but she hushed herself. Right, right. But maybe that's why she was doing that work because it made it, her feel better or yes. something. I don't... Yes. I don't know. Yes. She saw herself in her clients and maybe it was something, it was projection. Maybe that's what she wanted yeah. for herself. Yeah. And so she went, she had a stroke on your honeymoon. No. Right? no. Um, or, or after? I get, well, Yeah. I don't remember the date, but yeah, it was like about a few weeks after I got back from our okay. honeymoon. She had already been in the hospital for three. And she didn't come to your months. wedding? No. Okay. That was why she wasn't talking to me. Okay. Your choice to not have. Yeah. Okay. We can, I mean, And I had a conversation with her because she hadn't seen my dad in 20 years. And I said, hey, mom, I would like you to be at my wedding, but I need you to talk to dad because it's a, it was a very small wedding in Hawaii. And I said, it can't, this wedding can't be about you and dad seeing each other for the first time in however many years. And she said, no, I won't, I won't talk to him. I said, well, this is my day. And I talked to my dad on a daily. I was like, how about I fly to see you and we can celebrate the wedding separately. It was a, it was a tough decision for me to make, but it was something that I felt setting boundaries. Yes, exactly. The day, my wedding day wasn't going to be their reunion. Yes. So that's why she wasn't talking to me at that time. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So she ended up having a stroke. Um, and then I got a call from one of her friends that she was in the hospital in Seattle. And I immediately flew up there and I saw her and she was shocked. I didn't tell her I was coming. It was, you know. Uh, and then... She was surprised to see me and I was leaving and I said, hey, mom, you're really sick right now. Do you want my help or not? And she said, yes. And then um, I was there for a couple of days that time. And as I was leaving, um, she told me she loved me. And I ran to the hospital bathroom and shut the door and cried. Because she hadn't said that since I was a little girl. What was your reasoning for not crying in front of her? Always feeling like I had to be the strong one. Yeah. 
it's also too, when you're the caretaker, if you're crying, you're the little girl then. Yeah. You know, it's like, I can't break my role of being the caretaker because the caretaker is strong. Mm-hmm. And when I'm crying, that's my little girl. And, you know, you want to be soothed. Yeah. And you can't go to an unsecure attachment to try and be soothed. Yeah, exactly. She wasn't able to be my mother. Yeah. You know, she was my mother to her capacity, but she really wasn't. So I guess I felt like crying in front of her. Yeah, it was my little girl that yeah. could be soothed. It's like, it almost like, and I've, I can relate in some ways. It's like, it almost breaks the role. Like if you started, it would be like, what? Yeah. You know, like you, it almost be like, you have, it would almost be weird because they'd be like, you have an experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they'd be like, you're feeling something. Like well, it would be like, what? Well, and I found out, you know, over the past few years when I would bring my childhood up to my mom, she said, oh, you went through hard times? And I was like, yeah. And I would explain some of my experiences and she goes, oh, I just thought you and your sister and your dad are at home having dinner every night. And I'm like, no, we wow. weren't. She, she's like, I had no clue. Like when she was off, you know, wow. she just thought we were a little family at home. Wow. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. I had that experience. I had this like, you know, traumatic experience for myself and I had, um, brought it up with my mom and my sister. We were like in Palm Springs and we were at this dinner and I was like, oh, I kind of was like, I'm going to explore this. Like, and I kind of brought it up and it was so wild to me because they were like, that is not what I remember at all. So I just was like, what? Like, it just reminded me how much we are in our own experience. And sometimes we have these stories that we've built over and over. And not that my experience wasn't truthful, but it's like I've had this story that I just continued to like reaffirm through so many things. And they did not have the same experience with it at all. And I was like, wow, that is so wild. It is. I mean, even I told my dad, I was like, you might not want to read this book because you're yeah. not. A hundred percent. There's stuff in there that you would be like, wait, I am a father and this was going on. Yes. And you know, he had his own experience and my sister had her own and it'll probably upset him. Yes. But it's very honest and I, you know, I don't hide anything. Yeah. I remember when you started to write it, maybe because I just remember talking to you about it and I was like, oh, wow, everything is really going to come out. So when you're going through these, how were you able to remember and recall? Like, that's kind of traumatic to pull them up. Were you doing that in therapy or how, what was your process for going through all these memories and experiences so that you could write them down and capture them in this book? So I have every journal from when I was 10 years old. Wow. And I was a writer back then. I just, it was my way to get it out. So I've carried through all of my moving and everywhere stacks of journals. So I had all of those memories in there and it would, in my poetry and everything. So I was able to go back and be like, okay, I remember this and pages and pa notebooks. Like, so it's all there. And then I also have, I have, like I said earlier, I have a really good memory. Um, and yeah, the process was hard. And then the reliving the process. Because then once you yes. write a book, then you got to edit it 17 times. <laughs> and then you're like, this shit's old. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, now mom's passed. I got to write an epilogue. Yes. And so now, and now I'm about to do the audiobook. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> so it's, you relive the trauma, but when you do the work, you know, 
how to take care of yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we kind of, with Bo- the Bobby thing, I wanted to just like finish that. So after the honeymoon, the stroke happened, mm-hmm. he hadn't been, had experience with oh. mental health. Yes. Yeah. Um, so once he, uh, I mean, the first time he met my mother, she came to our house in Manhattan Beach and basically locked herself in a bedroom for a week and came out here and there and it was a very weird experience and then we got married and then she was a stroke and then Bobby and I became her caretaker moved her from Seattle to uh, California and he was so confused because I normalize my mom's behavior and he's like he's like what is going on here and he came to me he's like I he's like how do you think this is normal the way that your mom is acting or behaving. And so we uh, took a NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness course called Family to Family. And he wanted to. Um, it So it's for family members who have loved ones with a mental health condition. And I believe it was 12 or 13 weeks um, in person. Every Tuesday night, we went for a few hours. And each Tuesday, you have different topics that you discuss and educate. And it's a support group. And when I, I couldn't go like a few Tuesdays, he would go by himself. And it was so helpful because it taught him empathy. It educated him on mental health conditions. It, and he, he understood it and he understood where I came from. And um, it really actually helped our relationship too, rather than just pushing it off and ignoring it and not really talking about how it affected me growing up, how my mind works, um, and how my mother's mind works. And it's an amazing, amazing course and a support group. And I I would say anyone, like support groups are a great, great thing to know that you aren't alone and you can talk about it. Um, and then Bobby became my mom's caretaker too. He put so much effort into her. And making sure she was comfortable, making sure she had everything she needed, moving her from place to place, uh, taking care of uh, her cabin, you know, that we got her. And he became very empathetic. Mm. Yeah. Seeing and hearing about his support for her was just like so beautiful. And she responded to him well. Yeah. I mean, her journal might say otherwise. But. No way. <laughs> That's actually hilarious. Yeah. That's hilarious. And then <laughs> my mom. That is bless so funny. Her, bless her. But bless. she wanted to live in, she loves living in the mountains. Like okay. she always likes to be in an isolated place. So yeah. she wanted to live close to us. So it was Idlewild. Have you been? Yes. Yeah. Love Idlewild, California. Yes. It's like the mountains above Palm Springs. So we got her a cabin there. And then uh, day two before her passing, um, her sister Carol was there. And she's like, well, let's talk about something positive. Um, you know, because my mom was regret, regret. And Carol was like, well, let's talk about Idlewild. You love that place. And my mom goes, I never liked it there. Oh, like, 100%. <laughs> love it. You're like, I got you. I love I that. I told Bobby and the look on his face was like, what? <laughs> it's like, no, disgusting. <laughs> and it's just like, can't like snap out of that. Like, yeah, you know, and be like, yeah, that's true. And like the, it's almost like the child, like not wanting to be happy or feel okay. Yeah. But in her journals, she does say that she loved it. So I know she was wow. just, she likes to, it's like one last dig. Yes. One <laughs> last little dig. Yes. Yeah. And 
For anyone that is like in relationship with someone to support their mental health, what are some suggestions that you have for them? Oh gosh. Patience, empathy, listening. And Bobby said this on the podcast too, like listen more. Yes. Don't necessarily give advice on what they should do. Um, seek help them seek help without judgment. Cause I think there's a lot of judgment for someone who has a mental health condition. Let them know that it's normal and it's fine and you're there to support. Um, help with the tools, uh, you know, the natural tools that there are to, and then, you know, support if there is medication. Uh, I get a lot of questions like, are you anti-medication for someone, you know, because they're all about meditation and the cold plunge or this and working out. Uh, but no, there are, people need medication sometimes. And um, just supporting them on that process, which can be really difficult, figuring out the correct cocktail of medications as well. Um, it can be really helpful, but just supporting yeah. with non-judgment. That's I love that. Sense. Listen more. Bobby's yeah. a good listener. Well, sometimes. I don't know. No, well, some, when it's your husband, it's like a different <laughs> game. I was like, he's a good listener. And you're like, what? <laughs> he's learned to be a better listener. Really? But, uh, and sometimes, you know, I be like, hey, Bobby, I have something I want to say, uh-huh. but I don't want you to talk. hundred <laughs> percent. I literally am like, sometimes I'm like, it's actually not that hard. Just let me say whatever I want and like, don't take all of it seriously. Yeah. Because I'm like, so we're moving to Malibu, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't know if I can move to Malibu right now. I'm like, just let me fucking say whatever. Yeah. Just let me say let weird me- shit. Let yeah. me talk and not make sense. Yeah. And just be like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's very simple. <laughs> exactly. Just let me talk and let, I don't need a response. Let me talk. I don't need a response. Let me not make sense. Yeah. and uh, Or let me talk and I'm not asking for your opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking for you to solve my feelings right mm-hmm. now. Just yes. listen. A hundred percent. Because then there's sometimes, for me, if that happens, it's like I switch out of the mode of like me feeling Mm-hmm. And I switch into the mode of like being like, okay, how can I fix it? And that's not where I want to be. Yeah. I'm enough in my, how do I fix it? I need to be in more of my feelings and like that permission, yeah. you know, to be more in your feelings. Something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, I wanted to talk a little bit about was the numbing. You mm-hmm. know, when you kind of, at 13, you kind of like left your body almost and just started to numb. Because I think a lot of people numb that have mental health or struggle with mental health. And so I just want to open up a conversation about numbing a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, as a teenager with that, because I didn't, I, I think as teenagers and kids, we, our brains are still yes. growing and developing and we don't know, we don't have the resources, which the hope is that now we have more resources for teenagers and kids. Uh, so I became a raver. Oh, I did too, babe. Oh, that was fun. Oh, but it, I was later, I was in college. Oh, I started at like 13. High school? Fuck yeah. <laughs> a raver at 13 is... In Indiana, pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I would do everything. Give me all the ecstasy mixed yes. with some ketamine, mixed with some cocaine and some meth and some whatever all wow, night long. Mm-hmm. Cool. So cool. <laughs> so pretty. Yeah. Not pretty. I was a hot mess. Wow. But. Were you going to school? Um, I would go to school. I think my senior year when I looked at my card, I was at in class like 50% of the time. Wow. Okay. Because I would be like, hey, let's meet at this door. And like, we would skip school all the time. Yeah. And then go do like some ecstasy. And then I'd come home and have dinner at home and sit at my dining table and high as fuck. And my dad never knew. 
Wow. Supposedly. Or maybe he was just so detached. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of numbing in that. Even when I moved to California the first, you know, four years, I was... The, one of the reasons I did move to California because the raves were way better here. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. You weren't like in a barn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I moved to the Hollywood scene, which was awesome. Um, all the Hollywood clubs and all of that. But... Yeah, and then I, I just, my depression was getting so bad because if you're doing drugs and you're coming down all the time, it's awful. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? And I remember after a three-day bender, I was like in a park and the sun was coming up and I was with a friend and I was like, what am I doing? I was like, there's something greater. This is not what you're meant to be. And... um that's when I made a change. So I said, this is it. We're done. So then I went back to think about when I was happiest. And that was when I was a little girl and I was training for a half marathon. And so I decided I am going to cut this out, which it took, there was still times where I was still like go party a little bit, but I got in triathlon and surfing. And, you know, and the, I will say one of the reasons I was destroying my life and it was my own fault. I was, you know, it was, I was just making all the wrong decisions because I thought I was going to end up like my mother. So what was the, what was the reason for me to even strive to have anything? Because it happened to my mom, to her father. And so I was being such a victim back then. But then I made that shift and I said, no, this isn't going to be you, Karina. And I started working out. And even as a little girl, I wanted to be a personal trainer. No way. Yeah. I would watch my mom work out to like Jane Fonda and all that. And I was like, that's cool. I want to be that person. So I went back to that, that little girl in her dreams and I cleaned myself up and changed the friends I was hanging out with. And instead of going to the club at night, I would go to bed early and wake up at sunrise and go surf and get in the ocean. And... The process just, and of course, I got into therapy and yoga and uh, read every self-help book out there. And I just started healing myself and it, it took time. And then once I felt like I was on the healing path and journey, uh, I got back into wanting to share that message with other women. That's how Tone It Up came to be for me. My path to Tone It Up was showing that you can heal yourself through movement. And uh, when I met Katrina, that's, you know, we each have our own story of how we wanted to build a community for women for Tone It Up. And it was to better everyone's life. And there was a big mental health part to that. Mm. And I'm so glad that you're able to really step into that more, Mm -hmm. you know, because that doesn't feel good when it's like you feel like you're kind of hiding parts of you and your story. Yeah, in the beginning of Tone It Up, I was like, Kat, I can never tell anybody my past. Yes. Like, I'm a fitness superstar, yes. healthy, you know. Yes. They cannot know that I was doing yes. drugs and yes. I was at the rave and I was, you know, a suicide attempt. But now, yes. thank goodness, that's the conversations are being opened up because so many people struggle. Like, I was holding that in. That couldn't have been healthy. Yes. And now, You're it's like, like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> And and it's then then that's the perfectionism that we're putting out there that then makes other people struggle because yes. they're like, but she's perfect. Why am I not perfect? Yes. And so that's 
I'm just putting it all out there now. Yes. Yeah. You like are a leader in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it's also, it's so interesting too, because, you know, what we do interviews and talk to people all the time, it's almost like the more you've been through, the more interesting your story is Mm -hmm. and the more attractive you are because you're being honest, you're being authentic, but you're also like, wow, you know, you've struggled and gone through a lot. It, it makes it more interesting. Like there's more texture to, to someone's story. And it's so weird that growing up, we thought we were like, we have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. We can never let anyone know. And now yeah. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. even more interesting. Yeah. It's good. I think that being more open, I always say perfection is, is a prison. Yeah. And yeah. we all need to be more honest and open and just real. And if it's on our mind or if it's something of our past, and especially for our youth, because if our youth sees that everything is perfect on social media or, you know, what they watch on whatever, um, it means it's going to harm them. Mm-hmm. So we need to be more honest. Yeah. So let's talk about the big silence and the goal of the big silence. The goal of the big silence is to save lives. And we already have. And I cry about that all the time when I get a message that says, you opened up and spoke your truth. And I was about to kill myself last night. But I saw you post something and I realized I'm not alone. And now I'm in therapy. I called, I dialed your helpline and found a therapist. Thank you. Like that, the goal is just to normalize the conversation and to make sure those who need help get help and that we support each other. And to, you know, suicide rates are at an all time high and especially for young people. And I'm just grateful that I'm still here so that I can share this message and we all deserve to live our best life on this earth, this moment that we're here, such a short time. And no one deserves to suffer. Um, so a big silence is, you know, we're a pod, mental health podcast. We're the book. We're the nonprofit. We're doing events and offering programming. Um, so you can go to thebigsilence.com to find that out. But the mission is I watched my mom suffer and I suffered a lot. And... It's not worth it. We can we can be happy. Not we don't have to be 100% happy all the time. I'm not saying that, but we deserve our best. Mm. Beautiful. So the book is out, The Big Silence. It is beautiful. You look incredible and it is fascinating. I was like, wow. You even have parts where you wrote in your journal. Yeah, so each chapter um is an opening from either a poem from when I from my journals when I was a little girl. Um, um, lyrics. My dad is a therapist, but he also he's uh, a therapist. Yeah. Wow. He, yeah. What a sweetie. Um, but he also is a musician, writes um, singer songwriter. He's a writes songs. So it's either a chapter opener with something I wrote, something he wrote, or my sister also writes poetry. So wow. I had I had my family involved in it, and then there are some journal entries in there too. Is he going to read it? I don't know if you yeah. should. I always say that. I'm always like, don't. And then it like makes them want to do it more. I know. He, it's he like probably that, will. They want the pain a yeah. little bit. Yeah. You know, they want that little. Oh, well, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful you came and I'm so grateful to be your friend. And yeah, I just am in awe of you and everything that you do. And it's just such a pleasure to know you and Bob's. Thank and you. And the puppers. Oh, no. I know. You got to come visit us soon. I will. My I favorite know. spot. Okay, guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.
Thank you so much, Karina Dawn. Again, the book is The Big Silence, and you can also check out her foundation, The Big Silence. They do work in the mental health space, and it's really powerful. And thank you to our sponsors for this episode. All of the discounts are in our show notes and on almost30.com. We have episodes every single week. So we will see you on the next one. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye.